Hey, I'm Sam. Hi, I'm Ashley. And you're listening to All Bodies, All Foods, presented by the Renfrew Center for Eating Disorders. We want to create a space for all bodies to come together authentically and purposefully to discuss various areas that impact us on a cultural and relational level. We believe that all bodies and all foods are welcome. We would love for you to join us on this journey. Let's learn together. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to another episode of All Bodies, All Foods. Sam and Ashley are here today, and we are joined by a special guest, Dr. Martha Koo. We're going to talk about alternative treatments and therapies today um, when working with clients with mental health issues, disordered eating, and some eating disorders. So we're excited for this. We hope that you all are as well. So Dr. Martha Koo is double board certified in psychiatry and addiction medicine. She is also certified in psychedelic assisted therapy and an adherence rater for MAPS psychedelic research. For over 25 years, Dr. Koo has enjoyed her private practice, providing outpatient psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, and pharmacological treatment for individuals, couples, and families. A pioneer in the development and application of transcranial magnetic stimulation, Dr. Koo is the founder of Neuro Wellness Spa, where she offers TMS, magnetic e-resonance therapy, IV ketamine, Spravato IV nutrition, and photobiomodulation as novel interventions for treatment-resistant mental illness. Dr. Koo is also the medical director at Clear Recovery Center, a residential detox and intensive outpatient treatment centers for individuals struggling with mental health, addiction, and dual diagnosis. Dr. Koo, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much, Sam and Ashley. I'm excited to be here. I love your podcasts and and all the mental health awareness that you do to to get out there. Thank you so much. Thank you. We love hearing that. (laughs) Yeah. So we would love to just start today, Dr. Koo, with maybe, um, could you share with us and our listeners just a little bit of what kind of got you on this path of working with alternative treatment and alternative therapies? Yes, I'd be, I'd love to. I think that it's no surprise, right? The vast majority of people that, that struggle with mental health issues. And I think that uh, medicine has done a wonderful job in, in, in trying to tackle the issue and come up with new interventions. But I think like there's, there's really two big areas that I noticed in my years of practice, just in my private practice individually, providing both, you know, medications and intensive therapy that we mm-hmm. miss. And I think one is that it's well known, but hard to address that many, many, many individuals don't respond to just medications and therapy alone. And when people are investing that much time and energy to feeling well, and I was in that process, obviously it's sad and frustrating. And I wanted to be able to do more for those patients. I also think the other area is, and I've always tried to emphasize this philosophically, that, you know, mental wellness is more than just the absence of illness or the absence of disease. And I think having treatments, right, that can really improve quality of life 
is super important. And a lot of the medic, you know, in terms of medications that we use, they have their own list of side effects that really impinge on that quality of life. So even with people that are lucky that do respond, let's say to an antidepressant, anti-anxiety agent, they think they're often left, um, perhaps not with complete wellness due to, to side effects. And so it was really, you know, just working with people over, over, over two decades and seeing these people really investing in therapy and medications and not achieving full wellness that, that had me really interested in alternative therapies. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, you hear a lot of, you know, when people start medications, they sort of say, I know I have to give it time. I don't know if this is working. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious at like, at what point do you feel like, can we say officially like this is like a resistant case? That's a great, that's a really great question. Um, so typically in, in from the medical side, we look at an adequate drug trial, meaning that the person has reached the therapeutic dose uh, to be at least four weeks, sometimes six weeks. And so it can take a couple of weeks to get up to what we consider a therapeutic dose. And then you want the individual to be on the medication, you know, four to six weeks after, after that. So it's, you know, a fairly um, significant amount of time when someone's not feeling well. And you'll see some of these alternative treatments, some of the benefits are the rapidity of, of response and, and efficacy, um, as well as the tolerability. But I, I also think that we, we look at resistance as a, as a tricky word and we've in medicine, we're trying to, you know, change that up, which I think is great. I think sometimes patients feel um, badly when we say like, oh, treatment resistant illness or right. then we treatment refractory, which also doesn't instill a lot of hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, now right. we're saying like difficult to treat. So I prefer to say, right, like, you know, we don't do well with one medication or two. It's difficult to treat, um, but it's 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 a, the vast majority. I think people are surprised to hear that. You know, there's a famous, you guys probably know about it, the famous Stardy trial, which is old now, but it was the largest study by NIMH. And they showed that really with one antidepressant trial, we only capture about 30% of patients with depression that get into remission. Mm. Um, after two trials, then maybe 50%. And 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 that's really like 10 people, you say five of them are still severely depressed. And this is after we're looking at maybe eight to 12 weeks, right, mm. of treatment. And that's, those aren't great outcomes. No. This is such an important episode because as we know, we talk a lot about eating disorders, obviously on this podcast, but eating disorders so rarely travel alone. Yeah. And it's so common to see an eating disorder and depression and anxiety. So I think it can give a lot of hope for people out there who are struggling with those things to know that there are other paths to recovery. And I'm, I'm curious if, um, so do you, would you suggest that people sort of try the medication and therapy first before, or is this something someone can try right away or how, what are your recommendations around that? I think there's two ways to look at that. I, I think it's reasonable, obviously, to try one medication, right, in terms of cost and maybe ease of treatment. Mm -hmm. I think if someone has a depression, and yeah, to, we should really bring it back, uh, obviously, to eating disorders. So, Sam, I'm so glad you said that. I mean, I think we know depression is highly comorbid um, with eating disorders as well as anxiety, OCD. So, even though I'm maybe talking about some of these treatments specifically for depression, um, they're very applicable in, in people struggling right. with disordered eating. Um, and some actually, there was a real recent trial, we can talk about it later, of TMS specifically looking at anorexia. So that was interesting. It mm. just came out. 
Um, but I, I think trying a medication is very reasonable, right? Some people, do, you know, you may be in that 30%. You may tolerate it really well. It may, it mm-hmm. may work. I mean, the, the odds aren't great for that, but it does happen. And I look at sort of accessibility and cost as really important parts of treatment. Um, however, there's also the piece of if, if TMS, we'll talk about transcranial magnetic stimulation, that's clearly, it's currently indicated for someone who has tried and failed one medication. But when you look at the the robust response and how people feel, if I had my choice, yeah, that would be first line treatment. Um, mainly just efficacy of outcomes, tolerability. Uh, it's really it's really hard to beat. And so it would be nice if that could be first line. But currently, I think to, to answer your question uh, fairly on an academic and clinical level that, yeah, somebody, we would recommend clearly a trial of an antidepressant first. Mm, got it. Dr. Q, I'm curious, can we kind of like go down a list of treatments and therapies that you provide at Neuro Wellness Spa and, and and really simply educate us all on what these different forms of treatment are? That would be great. I would okay. love to. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, could you first talk a little bit about TMS or MERT? And am I saying that correctly, MERT? You're saying that absolutely correctly. Okay. So, <laughs> So um, TMS stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation, and um, it's it was FDA approved in 2008 for major depressive episode recurrent. Um, it's currently FDA approved also for OCD, actually cigarette cessation and migraine with aura. So it, it has a bunch of indications. Wow. It's it's highly effective though across a lot of um, illnesses we know, really good for anxiety disorders, also could be used in bipolar disorder. There's a lot of efficacy for addiction and as I was just mentioning, um, eating disorders. It's um, And it's covered by insurance, which a lot of people don't know. What the technology is, is it's a neuromodulation technique. So it uses a high intensity magnet, like an MRI strength magnet. And we focally stimulate specific neurons in the brain that we know aren't functioning well in whatever illness we're targeting. So Hmm. quick way I like to say it for people is a little bit like physical therapy for the brain. Okay. Um, People don't think of neurons that way, but they are. And um, so it just involves placing a coil, a magnetic coil on on an individual's head. And we calibrate uh, the device specifically to the individual based on placement and intensity. And the process um, involves somebody coming to the office five days a week for Mm -hmm. about six weeks. Um, and then there's the next three weeks, there's a bit of a taper. Uh, so, you know, about five sessions during that time and it's a really tolerable treatment They're in and out in about a half hour, drive themselves to and from, there's absolutely no anesthesia, right? There's no cognitive impairment. There's no, there's no seizure. Sometimes people confuse TMS with ECT, which is mm. electroconvulsive therapy, very different. Um, and the beauty of, of TMS is not only is it, covered by insurances, the vast majority of insurances, it's um, people start feeling better within two weeks. You know, the vast majority of people, yeah, by about session 10 Mm -hmm. are feeling not full remission, but they're feeling better. Mm -hmm. You know, when we compare to a medication where usually by two weeks, you're barely getting up to what would be considered a first therapeutic dose. And so then that's sort of the start. And so Mm -hmm. that is so helpful, I think, for patients to have that response quickly, um, especially mm-hmm. when they've struggled uh, often for quite a while. Um, 
what else would I say about it? And and th- there's a whole other support system that comes around with that, right? As we were talking about wellness, at least at Neuro Wellness Spa, uh, we have usually a match the TMS tech with the, the patient. And so there's a mm-hmm. rapport building and a relationship there over nine weeks. And we're helping them with, with nutrition and exercise and social engagement. And there's just a structure around that. And so I think that also, right, um, is is incredibly helpful and just offers a level of support that for most just biological outpatient treatments, um, patients don't get. Yeah, that's so true. Is this something that patients can do simultaneously with um, maybe therapy, you know, if they're seeing a weekly therapist or if they're even, so at Renfrew, we have an IOP, PHP residential. If they're even in like an IOP or PHP, can they do these at the same time? Oh, that's that's the the most excellent. Really. Okay, <laughs> we we, um, we typically. I mean, I'm I'm very blessed. The area I live in, Southern California, the vast majority of patients we work with do have therapists. Um, okay. People are very aware, and and there's good accessibility. But anybody who comes who doesn't have a therapist, believe me, they have one by the end of the treatment. We we really think that that's an incredibly important component um, of the whole process, and as as you mentioned in the start in my bio, I'm medical director at Clear Recovery. And we see the best responses when we can treat patients that are in their PHP IOP and then doing the TMS. You know, sometimes we wait those first two or three weeks of the PHP. Sure so much going on and a lot to adjust to and to just add, but um, then we coordinate it to make it very easy for patients. So we'll schedule their appointment either right before or right after their IOP, which makes it, it really convenient for them. But, but yeah, those, when you combine and collaborate in that manner, uh, it's, it's really beneficial for the patients. Awesome. Wow. I'm so glad you brought up ECT because I have to admit when I first heard about TMS, that was my first thought. I would, you know, all those scary like movie clips of people, you know, getting, you know, the ECT treatment. And I'm so glad we're doing this episode because I hope we're breaking down some of the fear around these, these interventions that could be really helpful, but I have to ask, I'm so curious do you know what it feels like physically? <laughs> like what is, you have this thing hooked on your head. Like what, what does it feel like? Yeah, I'll you explain. Know, yeah, my, my laugh. I, I pretty much try everything. I don't feel I, I, well, I guess I should take it back. I haven't tried all the medications out there, but in terms of TMS or MERT, and we'll talk about the other ones, absolutely. I think it, it really helps, right? When you're trying to describe a process to a patient, if you have some personal experience. Um, yeah. But yeah, the TMS coil, is, so when we're treating depression, let's say it's sort of on your left frontal forehead there, OCD centrally, and you actually feel a tapping on your head during the active Mm -hmm. treatment. There's nothing really tapping there, but there is a, because of the magnetic force of the energy, it feels as if there's something tapping. Um, That's not continuous. The whole treatment's about 20 minutes and the the tapping's intermittent. So um, on for 10 seconds, off for about 40 seconds, right? So there's these little breaks and it's really tolerable. Um, Some people, some people actually like the feeling. I'd say it just feels like a, a, a a tap. In the very beginning, I could say it's a little uncomfortable. Um, some people get a headache day one, easily treatable with Tylenol or Motrin before you start. And then that's usually the end of it. Um, but you feel this tapping sensation. But other than that, you're alert and you're awake. You can talk to the tech. You can meditate. You can 
you know, read a book, you can do homework if you're a student, watch television. Um, you're, it's really a very tolerable olive treatment. And you're you're sitting in a chair that, um, for lack of a better description, a little bit like a lounge chair or a dental chair even um, with a nice head support system, sort of a pillow around that. There's a little noise to the the process, right? You think of an MRI, um, but when you have you have this pillow around your head and the head support system that that blocks that out, so it's really a comfortable. Um, I've had a lot of well, to be gender biased, a lot of female identified patients being like, "Oh, I should get a mani pedi," you know, <laughs> during this process. They start feeling really good by the end, you know. Mm-hmm. That's fun. They come in and like, yeah, not not a lot going on. They are enjoying by the end. They're like, hey. You should you should offer Manny Patties at the end of the <laughs> wow, a full spa experience. Right. Spa, yeah. Yeah. Is that something, Dr. Cusa, like at the end of it, can a client kind of just get up and walk out? Do they have to take a minute to recalibrate or resettle or no, absolutely. It's it's just up and out. Up and oh, out. Wow. Right okay. back. To- yeah, in the car, driving wherever. And, and okay. that's the biggest. I, I'm glad, Sam, you asked. I mean, people really with ECT, you know, there's a seizure and there's cognitive impairment and there's anesthesia and you certainly can't drive. And, and you really have to be on disability because you really can't work, right, and do ECT simultaneously. Um Whereas with TMS, no, it's people come on their lunch breaks from work, you know, before school, after school. And it's really does not interrupt any um activities of daily living that people are committed to or, or need to, to need to do. Wow. This is fascinating. The brain is so complex. I'm just curious. You know, we don't really know how medication works exactly. Do do you know how this works or is there just sort of theories around it or how much do we know about what it's actually doing to the brain? Well, we know a lot about what it's doing. And I think your question raises really the truth for all psychiatric interventions, right? We we sort of know what they do in a petri dish or what they do to the neuron, or we'll talk about TMS, what they do to maybe a neurocircuit or a connectome, but but how that translates to right what really happens, I think that's anybody's guess still. So, but we've really moved from that model of of right neurotransmission, which is the which is really how we thought of depression, um, all the way to neurocircuits, which is um what TMS focuses on to now, which we call like really the connectome, right? And we think it's the 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 interplay of of different neurocircuits in the brain that really is modulating these changes um, that we see, whether it's medication, you know, psychedelics, ketamine, and you know, all the way down. So a combination of like neuroplasticity and neuromodulation. What the TMS is doing, um, if we look at depression, that's maybe the you know the F one FDA indication. Um, it's targeting the dorsolateral medial, it's dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. Sorry about that. Um, so like I said, sort of your left frontal part of your your head, and it stimulates that circuit down to the anterior cingulate gyrus the amygdala, most people know the emotional seat of the brain, and then back up um, to the prefrontal cortex. And we know that circuit is really not functioning well in depression. So if somebody has depression and they went and had a, a spec scan or you know a functional MRI, we would see that that circuit isn't, isn't bright yellows and oranges and reds, right, as it should be. By the end of TMS, we also have evidence that that um, that that has changed in people that aren't depressed. Um, that that left-sided performance of that circuit sort of equals the right side. But that would be true, right? Whether they got better with medication or therapy alone 
or another strategy. So we do know what it's doing. Mm-hmm. I think the the magic or the mysticism is is how that really translates to obviously feel the well-being. Dr. Koo, how long has TMS been around and when did it become kind of, you know, our topic is alternative therapies as I'm air quoting, but like it, it feel, you know, I've heard of TMS before and I've, I've actually had a client that's engaged in it while we were working together. And so I'm just curious, like, when did it finally become something that like insurance even took over and said, we will cover this, you know? Yeah. It's a long time. And so it's sort of sad that it's still so many people are unaware um, wow. of it as a survey. So mid 1980s is really when it, it came around and um, Tony Barker's credited for it. it. It was really developed as a brain mapping, right, to figure out sort of which parts of the brain were responsible for which activities. Um, and then we had in the the 19, you know, in the 1990s, more really focused research on the utilization of TMS for depression. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark George credited with that, Ronnie o- Johnny O'Reardon, a lot of those people. But the first um, sort of the FDA approval was 2008. So okay. you see, like it's been 15 years yeah. um, for people. Wow. It was, it was um, on insurances pretty broadly around 2016, 17. Okay. So it okay. did take a while that it was actually very quick. I think it was one of the fastest uh, sort of defi- device manufacturers to get on insurances. Um, it usually takes quite a while. Uh, mm-hmm. So so that just changed everything. It had been pretty much cash pay before. Um, yeah. And it's and the coverage is getting better and better. And see, yeah. I do clarify that the FDA indication is just trying one medication and either not tolerating it wow. at, or not working. So yeah. it could be even two weeks. I didn't tolerate it. Most insurances require two and some four trials. So they're a little bit different, but they've it's gotten better and better um, as, as time has gone on. And uh, even though there's a lot of data in, in adolescence um, and really good efficacy, it's the insurance usually is 18 and above still. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you so much. I would love to kind of move on just because there are so many more that we want to ask you about. Um, but could you quickly touch on Mert and explain that to us? Sure. And Mert okay. will be fast because it's it's really like a more personalized or individualized TMS. So okay. same exact device, same exact uh, technology, right? In terms of neuromodulation, targeting certain neurocircuits in the brain. And the difference with the Mert is that we took an, we do an EEG of the individual's brain first, and then we send that off to a lab. And then we get a protocol that's really individualized by the Hertz, which is the frequency at which we're treating, and then also the placement. So with basic TMS, everybody gets a 10 Hertz treatment. Um, with the MERT, we, you know, we all run a little different in terms of what our baseline hurt should be. And so we can individualize, individualize that specifically. And then the placement depends on also their, their EEG. And we're looking at really synchronicity a- across the brain. MERT is um, really indicated for uh, traumatic brain injury, PTSD, really, really good, cognitive impairment, dementia, peak performance, right? Um, and like ADHD. So so, mm-hmm. so I think illnesses that we think of are in a little bit more globally, right? Involve the brain versus things that have maybe more specific circuits, OCD, T, um, and depression um, are really applicable for MERT. 
And so I, 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 when you say, which have I done? I mean, TMS, I've sat in the chair and tried. The MERT, I do, I've done several times. I do like really for peak performance. And yeah, it's amazing. You sleep better. I feel my my mind just works faster. Um, it's a really good anti-aging, right? We all know that as we get older, right? Um, we do, you know, every, every part of our body tends to slowly, slowly decline. Uh, and so I've used it for that. And same thing. My staff, somebody jokes me, they cut me off because I start doing it. And I come in with all these ideas I want to do. We're cutting you off the murphy. <laughs> <laughs> so but how long, down. Yeah. <laughs> how long do people, is that like a, a once a daily thing as well for six weeks? Perfect. We do that really in two weeks since, right? Okay. Most people end up doing 20 to 30 sessions. That's pretty typical. Um, but we go, we we do an EEG every two weeks. We look at okay. the changes in the brain that are occurring. We obviously coordinate that with how the patient's feeling subjectively, whether then we go ahead and do two more weeks. The, the huge indication I left off, I, I don't treat tons of children, but it's it's amazing for autism. So we've treated some children. They actually regain language. They'll sleep wow. through the night. It's, it's incredible for autism, people on the spectrum. Um, and with that, uh, we tend to do a, a series of about 30. And then maybe every year, uh, the individual will come back for, you know, they come, kids come back in the summer or, or winter break and, and do it again. Wow. That's incredible. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's awesome. We have um, next on the list, IV ketamine, which is, I have so many questions. Could you tell us a little bit about that, Dr. Ku, and what ketamine used to be used for or just how it sort of evolved through the years? Absolutely. So ketamine is um, actually an FDA approved um, anesthetic and it's it's a really, really safe medication. Um, sometimes people know of it as, as a really um an anesthetic used a lot in veterinary medicine. And the reason is because it's so safe, right? Most um, times we're worried about anesthesia, it's worried about like respiratory depression, right? Somebody's breathing. And so the lovely thing about ketamine is it actually doesn't cause any respiratory depression. It's an mm. NMDA receptor antagonist. That's sort of the the molecular use of it. I don't know if that has a lot of meaning to people, but what's important about that is uh, as an antidepressant, it works on a whole different system than what we're talking about when we talk about antidepressants with the serotonin and norepinephrine and dopamine. It really works on the glutamate system. And, and that was what was so novel about it. It was really... Uh, came on the scene around 2000 in terms of its antidepressant efficacy. And um, it's taken off since then. It, it can be used in many ways, ketamine, in terms of its uh, how it's administered. Right? Um, at our site, I do IV, which is intravenous. And so obviously that's putting a needle in somebody's arm and giving them um, the IV ketamine that way. And, but people, you know, that there's an FDA approved now medication, right, called Spravato or S-ketamine. So that's a nasal um, application. And then certain sites do do oral or intramuscular, which is a shot in a muscle in terms of the, the availability. So the process can really change. If, if, if someone's interested in ketamine, I think that's they really need to understand where they're going, how it's administered, really what we call the set and setting of, of the process, because it's a really important part of the treatment. What's the difference between 
glutamate compared to, I mean, when we typically talk about depression, we talk about, oh, I need a boost of serotonin. Oh, I need a boost of dopamine or, but what's, what's the difference for our listeners? How would you sort of describe the two? All right. Glutamate is, is the most prominent um, excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain. So that's one way to think about it. And it's usually contrasted with GABA, which is the, the most prominent inhibitory one. And it, this raises just questions of how much we don't understand what, you know, depression is. If we want to really stick, we could be talking about eating disorders or depression or bipolar disorder, but the concept of, you know, we think now in medicine of depression is a quite heterogeneous um, illness and, you know, we know there's factors of neurotransmitters. We know there's tra- factors of how neurons communicate. We think there's important things about in- inflammation, right? There's important things about the hypothalamic pituitary axis. And so, and there's important things about glutamate and GABA um, balance. And so I think as researchers, uh, we're trying to really figure out, and it's probably more than one thing, I think, you know, is the conclusion, Um, but it's it's sort of, they're just really different systems. So I I think I can't compare necessarily like a serotonin with a glutamate, but just say it is another neurotransmitter in the brain that's really important Mm -hmm. and really prominent. And when we modulate it, we see changes in mood. Wow. So interesting. Yeah. Um, okay. So, and Spravato is really ketamine just administered differently. Correct. Got it. Okay. Okay. So when you think about ketamine, I can talk about maybe those two processes. It's important to know, again, when we talk about accessibility and cost, you know, IV ketamine therapies are pretty much cash cash pay procedures at this point. Um, Spravato is um, on insurance and can be billed. And so I think that that's a beauty of that. Um, I'm, I, I am a little bit more uh, bent towards the IV process. And that's mm-hmm. because the bioavailability we know is hundred percent, right? When we give someone the IV and um, I come from a very psychoanalytic background. And so we do know modulating glutamate is important for mood in general, but I think that uh there's also this process of um, using it as a dissociative anesthetic, which happens at the, you know, sort of the IV. And it's about going in with a intention and in a certain set and setting and having this 40 minute infusion um, and being left alone, usually with curated music and an eye mask on and having this experience. Um, and then really importantly, like journaling and then going to therapy and processing that. And, and I feel like that's a really, really important and efficacious part of the, of the procedure. The Spravato is um, also coming into an office. There's a set routine twice a week for four weeks and weekly for four weeks. And it does have to be administered on site, um, observed, you know, patients, we can't call the medication in for patients to do this in in the privacy of their own home. Um, And so, and, and people will, will have a bit of a dissociative experience too. Uh, So, but it's just a different framing. There was a recent um, paper that came out that showed actually fairly good efficacy comparing the Spravato to the IV. The differences were people responded much quicker with the IV intervention than with the Spravato, but at the end of the eight weeks was pretty equivalent to maybe at the end of the two weeks for the IV. 
Um, so I think there are some advantages in terms of a uh, rapidity of response. They're both, you know, Spravato is FDA indicated for treatment resistant depression, uh, failing to medications. And then it's also approved for depression with um, suicidality. Wow. And uh, with IV, we see really good um, effects with depression, PTSD, anxiety, eating disorders. I mean, we haven't really focused. I say that the beauty of TMS for me with patients struggling with disordered eating is, you know, there's often a lot of anxieties about taking a medication. Um, I think dependency fears we see sometimes in that population. Um and I love the message because we're really showing them that the healing is coming from within and they're not broken. There's nothing defective about them. They they just need a little boost. And, and so I think a lot of people, when they take an antidepressant, they have that, that concern or that framing that there's really something wrong with me and I need this or I'm dependent on this. And, and mm-hmm. I think that's very helpful for that population. Um, with the IV ketamine, you know, we, we look at um, eating disorders sometimes a little bit in terms of like addictions where there's a lot of emotional avoidance or there can be, I don't want to grossly generalize, but some people there can be emotional avoidance and um, sort of more rigidity and and the tolerability of feeling and letting go. And, and I think that's the beauty of the IV ketamine process when we can treat these patients or what I've seen is is they're just able to like feel their feelings and process them on a much deeper level. Their sense of self, right, really gets to be worked with. They think there's a lot of identity wrapped up sometimes with disordered eating and and who am I if I I am not struggling with you know my food or my weight or my body image and and the ketamine is is really uniquely poised to look at those issues, um, which I think is 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 really really just a nice process um, mm-hmm. in common, like we're saying, like the importance of the therapeutic component of any biological treatment. Mm-hmm. To have that relationship with someone to really process your experience. Uh, this isn't, you know, I imagine this isn't a situation where you kind of go into the office and it's like, fix me and you leave. And it's sort of like you're having an emotional experience and mm-hmm. it's helpful to talk about that with someone. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. I was just curious if you could maybe break down just a little bit for our listeners that maybe um, haven't experienced something like this before. But so when you say like a dissociative episode with the ketamine, like what exactly does that mean? Can you yeah. break that down? Thank you. Yeah. And that's, and I really appreciate you asking because sometimes we look at dissociation as a symptom and this is a dissociative anesthetic, but it's really a little bit more like a psychedelic. And so the process is uh, we really want to frame the set and setting set is like how the patient comes in with what what's on their mind and and what their beliefs are as well as maybe their past and their personality that's all part of set and setting obviously is where uh the process is taking place and then we help them with an intention of something important that they maybe want to focus on and then uh we put in the iv in their arm and uh there's we also pre-medicate with uh, medication. So there's not nausea. That would be main common side effect of, of ketamine. And then they're just lay down. They usually have a nice blanket if they want, they, if they're comfortable and then they can put an eye mask on and they have earphones. And then we just let them start the process. What it feels like is, is really a, a little bit psychedelic, right? Everyone's a little different in terms of what happens and every session is different, but you could see 
colors, you could even have something that's a little bit more linear, sort of like a dream that would come mm-hmm. through. Sometimes there's really more of a sense of a feeling. Um, and the infusion is about 40 minutes. And and the other beauty of, of ketamine is it's pretty quick in, quick out, right? When we do it IV. And so recovery is very fast. Um, people aren't left. You're not left groggy all day. Um, you know, we should take about 20 minutes to recover. Okay. Uh, as I said before, they do need a ride home. Um, so it's a real, like a, a bit of a psychedelic experience. And it's, it's, this anybody knows when they talk about that, it's a little hard to put in words, right? We right. say <laughs> natural associated, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a, a sense of like, there's just a noetic quality or a little bit of a mystical sometimes experience or a feeling of that there's the, there's hope and there's more, there's a world, you know, you're part of something and the world has meaning and purpose. And I think that's part of the healing process. There also can be, like you say, really visual and um, maybe somatic even experiences like a dream where people work through trauma. They work through really challenging things, but there's enough space with the ketamine on board for them to be able to process those. Mm-hmm. So I would remind patients it's, you know, with ketamine, you, you often get what you need. It's not necessarily what you want. Um, but, uh, cause there can be challenging infusions, uh, but, yeah. but, you know, your brain and body is really smart and it's not going to show you anything you're not ready to handle, but, but right. There's beautiful, beautiful, um, experiences people have, uh, and then there's challenging ones that mm-hmm. are equally therapeutic, um, and and really important. And I think the main thing is then taking the time to process them and put the right meaning on them and understand um, mm. how they you know, how they impact you in your life. So to integrate these experiences and right. into your work. Yeah. Um, Ashley, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say. So definitely, you would recommend like having a therapist, like and doing this work in addition, you know, kind of processing through the experience. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. we have, um, we, we let, um, you know, we have extra rooms and if therapists want to come and some patients want to have a therapy session right after. Um, yeah. Most don't, but we certainly do that because we really, like you say, emphasize that a lot in terms of uh, the necessity of being in therapy. Uh, the research shows that you know, the, there's a lot of sort of opening and neuroplasticity in the brain within the next 48 hours. And so we do try okay. somebody's their therapist the next day or two days after. Um, mm-hmm. It's really ideal to process as well as journal that night as much as they can remember of their, of their experience. Mm, to really like take advantage of that window of opportunity. Yeah. 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 I'm curious, is there anyone you would say that this would be contraindicated where you would say, you know what, this probably isn't a good idea. I'm just curious, or is this really for anyone? No, it's, it's a really good question there. Um, I mean, there is some literature of, of using ketamine, you know, in the, in people struggling with addiction. My view is, is if somebody's in active um, addiction, that would certainly be not, not where, where we would go, you know, right. Certainly fine if they have a history of, and now they they have a period of sobriety and and they're in a good recovery support system. Then then I think IV ketamine is very safe. But but I think that would be um, somebody that that 
we would say it, it's really probably not the time. And, and, and even, and it doesn't really matter of the intervention. It's also, if that's going on, then I think it's hard to know what's what, right. And so sort of important to, to have a baseline, you know, of recovery from that before adding any biological, you know, even if we're talking about a medication, um, mm-hmm. but that's really it. I mean, everybody, yeah. everybody else is fine. Um, TMS, I didn't cover that, but it's, you know, it's, it's like an MRI. You have to think of it. So if you have any ferromagnetic material, cardiac pacemaker, you know, an aneurysm clip, then unfortunately you can't do TMS. Gotcha. Good to know. Yeah. Could I ask, I've got a kind of a quick tangent question, um, just about thinking about, um, support systems for our clients that are experiencing these. Is there anybody that like the support or anything that the supporter needs to know, or the family members need to know when their loved one is engaging in one of these forms of therapy? I think, I mean, well, it's a whole other, Yes, 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 yes. I mean, I'm a very family (laughs) systems person, right? And I feel like we we all know the idea of the identified patient. I really feel, right, it's hard pressed for any of us if we have a loved one with a mental uh, struggle that, that, you know, doesn't impact the entire family or the entire family dynamics isn't involved. And so I think that to really get somebody into wellness, you know, if we we have our ideal situation, yes, the whole family is involved. Uh, For the ketamine, we, we rely on family and or supports a little bit more because like you said, the, the person really needs a ride home um, every time. And so that that's a bit of a demand on the family. Mm-hmm. Um, we, th- we definitely educate them so that they're comfortable, you know, they're picking up uh, their loved one. Uh, with TMS, we, we see less family actually involvement. People are welcome to come anytime. Yeah. They're welcome. You know, I've had a lot of parents and siblings and, and even children, adult children that have come or even much little children. We, we treat women, um, uh, like, you know, postpartum a lot. And so our staff love it. Oh, bring your baby. We hold them. (laughs) Um, but regardless, that wasn't really for support. So they're always welcome. Like we're very open and, and welcome that because I think the more education there can be, it's helpful. But other than that, there's no, no specific demands on family. I think them being educated on the process. And then, you know, people are different when they come out of depression. Sometimes they're less passive, right. Or, um, they want to go do more, their energy is better. They're more interested. And I think that's an adjustment for for any couple or, or family system to um to really realize that there's going to be those positive changes but those can be challenging in and of themselves sure yeah mm-hmm. so what do you think about moving us on to psychedelics dr Q? let's move can on <laughs> share with us all about that i'm so interested to hear what you have to say. (laughs) Well, this is a really, really, as you guys know, very hot topic now. And I think excitedly. So, um, you know, the psychedelics really started um, having some really good research in the 1970s, um, particularly LSD and psilocybin and really showing great, you know, some great efficacy for two things that actually we're not focused on so much now, but end of life distress and cancer Mm -hmm. and, and alcoholism. And, and then they were pretty much shut down. I think nothing really to do with, with the LSD or psilocybin, but really more political movements and, and sort of the times, um, 
And in the background for all these years, uh, certain researchers, and I would credit MAPS, which is a, a big organization working really hard to get psychedelics back on the scene. And so we're in a really exciting time, I think, for, for mental health uh, with the psychedelics. We're looking at hopefully having MDMA, FDA approved, uh, probably for just PTSD, um, perhaps this year, but but by 2024 and uh, psilocybin, hopefully shortly after. And uh, once again, just the the data looks really amazing in terms of these processes and, and just adds another, you know, way, which is, I think, back to what we're saying, you know, the sad thing about depression is how many people don't respond even to any of these, you know, TMS doesn't work for everybody. IV ketamine doesn't work for everybody either. Um, And having just a, you know, a lot of choices for people. Um, so yeah, I think the psychedelics are, are going to be huge and, and I think we're going to see a lot of great efficacy for them and people are really doing great due diligence to assure safety and, and sort of set protocols. Can you explain to us kind of what the process looks like if some, you know, when someone comes in and they let you know that they're interested, Sure. what is that like for them? Yeah. Um, so Obviously, right, legally now, right, we can't, I can't do, you know, offer psilocybin or offer MDMA. There are research sites, a lot of facilities. So people listening are interested. I mean, MAPS has tons, Johns Hopkins, NYU, UCLA. Um, So, but currently the really the only legal accessibility um, in California is with um, the research protocols. But what it, what it looks like really um, looking at either MDMA or, or psilocybin is, a little bit like we talked about the IV ketamine. I mean, you want to be connected with a really good therapist who um, understands what your issues are and can help you with intentions and framings and make sure you're in a really safe space. And then typically uh, the administration of the medicine uh, would happen orally, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then there's either like a four or eight Um, our process, right? That somebody has a journey um, on their psychedelic and they are never left alone, right? They're there. And the way, the way that most FDA trials are set up, there's two clinicians in there. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe a psychiatrist and a therapist, maybe two therapists, um, usually different gender identities and, uh, and the patient. And so there's a lot of really care that goes along with the process. And in that there's times where there's really patients going very inside, you know, I am eye mask on, listening to music, a very internal process, alternating with times when they're they're coming out and they're engaging in conversations with the therapist and, and processing um, most of the studies like with MDMA have been with, with trauma, um, processing that. And the outcomes are, are amazing. You know, the they've already published a lot of those in terms of the FDA trials and, and the, the really the PTSD for MDA outcomes are, are pretty spectacular. So really it involves, I think, I think this gets to how it's going to get translated with FDA approval and, yeah. and how the things will be set up, but ideally, right. It's, it's, um, it's really a process that's heavily therapeutic uh, with a lot of processing, you know, during this journey. And then um, several weeks in between where there's just more deep work done, deep therapeutic work before yeah. there may be then another journey. When when someone is kind of taking these medicines, MDMA and psilocin? 
psilocybin. Well, psilocybin, <laughs> that's actually the active. You got it. That's okay. the active ingredient when it gets digested. So, um, but psilocybin. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So when they're taking these, so it is, it is a, an extensive process. This will be, I mean, when, when this does get FDA approval and you all are able to provide this, that, I mean, your, your clients will be there for hours. Yes. Is that yes. okay? It will be, a, it will be a several hour process. Um, I mean, people are looking at other substances like DMT is, is, is a very, quick and and rapid thing but like there really aren't aren't that's not where the fda is looking right now um Mm -hmm. and i think that another whole a other whole pool um of of things that are happening right it's it's sort of tricky like when they happen what are studies are microdosing so that's a little different and and does involve right people are microdosing psilocybin let's just say and that can be a daily process done in the privacy of your own home um that's not there's not an fda approved you know, microdose of psilocybin mm-hmm. at this point. That's not something that doctors can do or prescribe or recommend, but as a process, um, since you're asking, that is another way, mm-hmm. right, that people are incorporating these alternative medicines into their life. And these, you know, the plant medicines have, have been around for thousands and thousands of years, right? right. Not right. in the U.S. culture, um, but you know, obviously in other countries. And and we know there's a lot of validity in their healing powers. Um, and I think it's about using them, right? Once you say in the right set and setting and in a therapeutic modality, right? It's not about just taking uh, them to have, to have a certain feeling, right? It's sure. really not embedded in a therapeutic process with intention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know we're just about out of time, um, but this was Fascinating. Thank you so much, Dr. Kufer, talking about all of this today. And hopefully it's been really informative. Thank you very much. It was really my my pleasure. I'm happy to, you know, talk about these to anybody anytime. They're they're really exciting. It's 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 great for psychiatry. Dr. Ku, real quick, any thoughts on where you see mental health moving with these um alternative forms of therapy? Oh, wow. Great question. Um, I, I definitely hope we're moving in a direction where we're, we're able to, to figure out faster for people what they'll respond to. So I think more personalized medicine, I think we're trying, right? I think the sad thing when we look at a lot of these illnesses we treat, eating disorders, depression, anxiety, OCDs, people go through, they feel a little bit like guinea pigs, right? So I think uh, if we can get better on our, I would love to see a process where we would look at somebody brain scan or blood draw, whatever that means, um, and say, oh, you should, you should be on Prozac or you should do TMS, right? You should do Spravato. Um, And I I just think I love that there's so much more awareness and less stigma around mental health. So I do think like in 10 years, right, there's a lot more hopefully emphasis on on wellness. And, you know, it's sad that you sort of have to have a disease to get an ICD code to get a treatment when so many of these treatments, right, would be really great preventatively. So I had my ideal world, like, you know, in the next decade, we would see, you know, just have women have, you know, we go for pap smears and, you know, mammograms, like it would be great that people could get therapy covered before they had a diagnosis, right? Um, Intervention to prevent illness, uh, if we know there's a big genetic uh, propensity versus waiting to get sick and then get treatment. So those would be, I think that that would be my dream. Awesome. Thank you so much. (laughs) Welcome.
Thank you for listening to All Bodies, All Foods. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Koo. If you loved this episode, you can support us by subscribing, rating, leaving a review, or sharing with others. And if you want more, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Our handle is at Rent for Center. For free education events, trainings, webinars, resources, and blogs, head over to our website, www.rentforcenter.com. And if you have any comments or questions you'd like us to answer in a future episode, be sure to email them to podcast at rentforcenter.com. I hope you join us next time on All Bodies, All Foods. Thank you for listening with us today on All Bodies, All Foods, presented by the Renfrew Center for Eating Disorders. We're looking forward to you joining us next time as we continue these conversations.